0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, consciousness, hardcore dharma, meta-systematicity, and much, much more. I'm Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Andrew Holacek. Andrew Holacek has completed the traditional three-year Buddhist meditation retreat and offers seminars internationally on meditation, dream yoga, and the art of dying. He's the author of many books, including Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming, and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. Andrew is masterful at joining the wisdom traditions of Asia and the knowledge of the West, and holds degrees in classical music, biology, and a doctorate in dental surgery. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call, What Does Dreaming Have to Do With Meditation? with Andrew Holacek. Andrew, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's great to be with you. Look forward to our chat.
0: Yeah, me too. I've been looking at your book called Dream Yoga, which is a very intriguing book. I was really having a great time reading it and wanted to talk to you about some of the stuff I saw in there and also just some of your experiences with meditation related to sleep and dream and dreamless sleep and so on. Okay. So I hope you're up for that today. Totally. Me too. So First of all, can you just give us a quick summary of your own background with your meditation tradition and practice and interest in dream yoga?
1: Sure. Happy to. I've always had, Michael, an interest in, you could say, I mean, retrospectively in my teens, the mysterious, the occult. So I started with just a longing to search for something. I had no idea what it was. And then as I was a young undergraduate pursuing a a double degree at Indiana University in music and pre-medical study sciences, I was diagnosed with hypertension and didn't want to do the medication route. So I heard a little bit about the benefits of transcendental meditation, TM. And this is quite a long time ago. There wasn't a whole lot of meditation on campus, so to speak. And so I did the TM thing. And it was one of those really rare and beautiful kind of before and after experiences. I completely, beginner's luck, just stumbled into a state of absolute samadhi meditative absorption where all thoughts just erased. And because of that, something foundationally transmitted and shifted in me. It was like, oh my gosh, what was that? I want more of it. And so began a somewhat systematic search for how do I now stabilize this? How do I get further? So
0: you did not go further in the transcendental meditation system?
1: You know, I didn't. I'm still extraordinarily grateful for what I learned. I didn't find, at least for me, much of a path quality to it. And so I started looking for something a little bit more um, systematic. And then, Really, somewhat by just a process of elimination, I came across the teachings on Buddhism and realized that I had come home. And since then, I've been a card carrying student of Kagyu Nyingma Tibetan Buddhism, including things like the three year retreat, which I accomplished. I'm still a very large part of what I do, but I've always maintained that, you know, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. No one has a patent on truth. So I I cast a very wide net, I think, as you can tell from my own work. I'm a big fan of. Integral approaches.
0: When did you do the three year retreat and where did you do that? Yeah,
1: I did it at, at Gampo Abbey in my monastery in Nova Scotia, a place called Sopacholang, Dharma place of patience or forbearance. And I started it over 20 years ago. I finished it at this point. The retreat I did, Michael, was unique in that it was one year in, one year out, which I thought was fantastic because in many ways it really was like a five year retreat. So it gave us one year, very deep dive into the Tibetan Buddhist kind of university of meditation curricula, basically. And then one year to digest, incorporate, and then also prepare for the next round. And so I, I found it just like that earlier experience in my 20s with TM. My three-year retreat, I would say, was the signature, certainly meditative experience in my life. Another one of these massive shapeshifters that uh, still continues to haunt me in the very best possible way.
0: I'm just curious, is this format for the retreat, is it one teacher for all those years, or are they bringing in various Rinpoche's to teach you different techniques, or how did that work?
1: Yeah, well, as you know, it, it was developed hundreds and hundreds of years ago, especially in the Kagyu tradition. Sure. Um, and then the way we were trained was we had one principal teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, who was our main Lama. He gave us all the transmissions and the empowerments and guided us with progressive trainings at the beginning. And then we had a number of different Lamas that would come in while we were, in fact, in retreats. So Trungpa Rinpoche was the abbot, the main man, the main teacher, but we also had other Kempel's Lamas coming through during the course of that time. So it was extraordinarily well-supported. I think that's what's critically important with these types of deep, deep dives is to have the kind of holding environment, the container, where you really feel held by tradition by masters and therefore can take a deep dive with real trust that you're willing to lose your mind, so to speak, to find reality. And I'm infinitely grateful to the lineage of the tradition that brought forth these practices, you know, the masters that have passed them down to me. And so I feel extraordinarily fortunate that I had this opportunity and, and to do it in English, because most of the time these things are still done in Tibetan by our China Translation Committee. Translated all these extraordinary texts. And as you may know, Michael, the great thing about these three year retreats is it really is like going to a meditation university. You know, you're given just a vast curricula of practices that are progressive and logically thought out. And by the end of the program, I have to add them up, we go through some 50, 60 different types of meditations. And this is where I took my really deep dives to return to your initial question into what I have now come to call the nocturnal meditations. And we can talk a little more about those, but that's where I I was able to spend months really soaking in things like dream yoga, sleep yoga, bardo yoga, and the like. And that's what's inspired me now to write a little bit about this material, share a little bit what I've learned and, and explored myself. So I feel just very blessed to have had this opportunity.
0: Now, was it the kind of thing where whatever practice you were resonating with, you got to go off and do more of that than other people who were you know, interested in other practices? Or
1: No. In fact, what was fantastic is when we finished the retreat, I think, I can't remember who pinged us this note. One of our lamas sent a message that says, now you know how to practice. So in other words, once we were in the retreat, it was a lockstep curriculum. You were on a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. And then when you finish, then what you do, and this is exactly what I did, then you can, so to speak, specialize. Then you can go back in and say, you know what? I had a fantastic five months with dream yoga or whatever. I had a fantastic couple of months with inner heat yogas or whatever, and then that becomes your lifetime practice. And that's really the way it's worked for me. So to some extent, most of the practices I was given, I have found a particular niche with these nocturnal practices conjoined with you know a few others. And so now I'm spending really the rest of my life in a very real way. Michael, when I left, it was as if I was given the wisdom skill set, the armamentarium of skillful means where I could now enter lifetime retreat in the course of my daily life. And I think this is important to say because in a very real way meditation is remedial work you know the point is i've come to understand it is to find a way to make your life your retreat to make your life your practice because otherwise there's so many shadow elements so many near enemies to meditation i've discovered this in my own path and as a meditation instructor for several decades that Meditation, as you know, can be very easily used for spiritual bypassing, for escapism, for spiritual materialism. There's just a battery of booby traps and snares that are waiting to trap meditators. And so to me the great gift was realizing that, hey, now you've got these tools. now you can enter lifetime retreat in the midst of your daily life. You don't really need to go back into a cave, even though I still do annual retreats to help stabilize. My big challenge these days, Michael, is finding out ways that I can literally make no separation between meditation and post-meditation. And this, again, is why I love these nocturnal practices where they allow me to stretch yoga in a colloquial sense, stretch the meditative mind, stretch my meditation from the somewhat naive Incubator level early stage meditation to what I playfully now refer to as industrial strength meditation, you know, a, a meditative mind that allows you to go into the darkness of the night. And if you believe in this sort of thing, even into and through the darkness of death. And so that's where these nocturnal practices have really come up for me. So
0: that's really fascinating, Andrew. I'm curious, when did you know that dream yoga was for you? Like, was there a defining moment or did it just kind of grow on you?
1: Yeah. Uh, There was a defining moment. I'm not unique here. Any intrepid explorer of consciousness has had these experiences. I've had a number of really seminal, for me, life-changing metanoias, you know, really shape-shifting experiences. And one that occurred in my early 20s, I write about it at the beginning of my dream yoga book, was one where I entered this particular state. When I was in it, it felt like an altered state, but I've come to since realize that that actually was a dip into the natural state. And in fact, when I'm not in that space, that's the altered state. But what one of the characteristics of that experience, Michael, was I found over the course of several weeks that, first of all, my lucid dreams, which is, of course, for listeners, is when you wake up to the fact that you're dreaming and still remain in the dream. So one of the things that characterized this two-week ride was fairly constant lucidity at night. In other words, my dreams became extraordinarily real. In fact, at times, even hyper-lucid, hyper-real. They felt more real than my waking reality. And that experience was conjoined with my waking reality becoming increasingly illusory, more dreamlike. And that was really kind of cool, again, for the first two weeks, but because I didn't have the trinal infrastructure at that point, what started out is maybe, hey, this is a glimpse of the awakened state, later transitioned to, hey, maybe this is a glimpse of insanity. I started losing my reference points. I started losing any sense of ground, and I fundamentally started to panic. And so I shut the experience down and hence began a real deliberate search to really unpack like, what was that all about? But that's where the nocturnal dream yoga, lucid dreaming things really came into play for me because... I started looking very deeply at these wisdom traditions and was immediately struck when I started reading about Buddhism, the etymology of the word Buddha, as you know, means the awakened one. And it's like, OMG, what does that mean? Awake as opposed to what? So I was immediately attracted just by that. And the more I dove into it, the more I realized that especially the Tibetan schools had this really sophisticated corpus of teachings on lucid dreaming, lucid sleeping, and the minute I reached into that, Michael, it was like, this is me. I've drunk this Kool-Aid. You know, there's so much explanatory power to this tradition that was able to help me understand what actually happened to me in this wild two-week ride that I said, whoa, these peeps must know something, or at least they must know something that I want to know. And so then, ever since then, Michael, you know, this is like some 40 years ago, I have taken it upon myself to just explore this exhaustively, and the result of these books and Y'all, the propaganda that I'm putting out there these
0: days. <laughs> well, something that I find really interesting about your work that is different than other works in the field, and let's just call the field, even though this is a narrower label than you would use, let's just say lucid dreaming for the moment. Sure. Okay. And, you know, if you read a typical book or article about lucid dreaming, they're going to really emphasize the, you know, you can live out your fantasies in your oh, lucid right. dream aspect. Which, I don't know, unless you're a teenager or something, this just is not that interesting to me. Correct. You know, I think that, okay, so what, you know? But you talk about it very differently. And of course, the dream yogas and Tibetan dream yogas talk about it differently in the sense that, no, this is a way to wake up. And in fact, in my Hindu tantra tradition, there were a number Mm -hmm. of dream yoga practices with the exact same idea that... It wasn't just sort of some kind of strange, playful diversion or entertainment that you could do in your dreams. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, it had a much more powerful application to actually help someone get some real realizations or real insights or actual awakening through these practices. And it seems like that's the main emphasis of your work. And to me, that makes it very different and much more intriguing.
1: Yeah, that's a very pressing comment, Michael. And and let me say a little bit about that because I think this is really important. I couldn't agree more with you, first of all. You know, there is a difference definitely between lucid dreaming and dream yoga. And in my cartography, and I can just briefly say what I kind of classify now as these four nocturnal practices, and then you'll see where this all fits in. In my cartography of these practices, my mapping, lucid dreaming is really just a platform. It's a practice, you know, roughly of self-fulfillment. Yes, you can use it for beautiful instances of psychological growth and that sort of thing. But as you correctly point out, it's kind of sexy in itself because you can fulfill you know, your wildest fantasies in the privacy and sanctuary of your own mind. But this is just the first of four. And as you said, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I would actually contest that just a little bit, Michael, and say there is something wrong with that in the sense that the very small print, so to speak, in the lucid dreaming contract that most people don't read <laughs> is, is that, Whenever intention is involved, even at the level of a dream, habit or karma is created. And this is both good and bad news. It's good news, as I'll talk about shortly, when lucid dreaming matures into dream yoga. It's not the best news if you go in there and you're just playing video games with your mind or engaging in all kinds of you know raging self-fulfillment. And this is parenthetically one reason that the extraordinarily sensitive dreamer Carl Jung never really advocated lucid dreaming because he saw the potential for self-aggrandizement in egoic inflation. And so there are limitations to it, Michael. And so people don't realize sometimes that, you know, using, as you well know, the tenets of neuroplasticity, that what you do with your mind, even in the dream state affects your brain, affects your body, and then affects your life If you're going in there and doing all this yahoo egoic stuff, that definitely leaves a trace on your mind. And this is something that dream yoga works with. So just to finish the mapping, dream yoga in a a popular kind of Hegelian term these days, transcends but includes lucid dreaming. In other words, it goes beyond. And just to finish it, same thing with sleep yoga. Sleep yoga transcends dream yoga. And I have to toss in here from the Nyingma perspective, sleep yoga is actually the main practice Mm -hmm. dream yoga is secondary in other words dream yoga is you're halfway there it's just partial lucidity if you accomplish sleep yoga because sleep yoga transcends but includes dream yoga and sleep yoga for our listeners is an even more evolved practice which is now being scientifically verified believe it or not in some laboratories we can talk about that where you maintain full lucidity in the dreamless state, what you know in your tradition is turiya. And this is what we know as dharmakaya in, in my tradition of Buddhism. And so sleep yoga is really the main practice. And then the final one, and end, this is my mapping, is bardo yoga. But in turn, it means gap transitional process, most frequently pended to the after death state, in other words, the gaps between lives. And then in my mapping, bardo yoga transcends but includes all these practices. And in, in many ways, in the Tibetan tradition, Dream yoga specifically, sleep yoga to a certain extent, came about specifically as a way to prepare to die. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But the idea here, and this is really important, is that, again, the good news, bad news, wherever intention is involved, karma, i.e. habit, is created. And so what one does in dream yoga, instead of, you know, the ultimate in home entertainment, That entertainment center is replaced with a kind of laboratory of the mind, where instead of self-fulfillment, it's more about self-transcendence. It's not so much psychological as it is spiritual. And I think that's important to say at the outset.
0: Right. So if we're going in there and just having all these wild fantasies and living that out over and over, we're actually building essentially bad mental habits.
1: That's correct. Yeah
0: and maybe actually increasing our own misery over time rather than awakening. It's
1: super samsara. And in fact, I read a recent paper where, I can't remember the author off the top of my head, where he talks about, well, you know, if you work with dreams in a certain way, if you study dreams, you're studying psychosis. And what he doesn't say, as I would append, is when you're studying non-lucid dreams, you're studying psychosis. Because in a very real clinical way, and we can talk neurologically about this if you like, the mind does go a little bit crazy in non-lucidity, and that's not going to wake you up. Lucid dreams have the potential, but if lucid dreams aren't harnessed, that's also not going to wake you up. That's just super samsara. There you are. I don't know if you know the myth of Gyges, which is a beautiful Greek mm-hmm. story You know about this guy who attains the power of invisibility. And what does he do? You know, I mean, well, he kills the king and rapes the queen. And so the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path. It will show you where you are. I still find my dreams, and I've been practicing this concertedly for four decades, my dreams are still profoundly revelatory in every sense, and sometimes they're somewhat humbling in that regard, where I think, you know, I think, oh, I understand the teachings on emptiness. I I'm getting there. And my dreams are telling another portrait and this is why of course the psychological teachings this is where spirituality conjoins with psychology there's a tremendous amount that we can tap into in this vast natural resource and reservoir that we have available every single night and i guess michael that's one of my charters now is that life is so short it's so precious we spend up to a third of our lives lost in the oblivion of non-lucid dream and sleep If we attain lucidity in the dream state, you know, we enter the dream state, some researchers say, up to 500,000 times during the course of our lives. And that can amount to, if you do the math, up to seven years of our life is lost in non-lucid dream. And if we can maintain lucidity, I talk about it as night school. It's a way to add a month, a year to your life. 25% of your dreaming space is in REM sleep. So I get super excited about this because, and this is no exaggeration, I do my meditations in my sleep now. If I don't have time during the day, I practice at night. I attain my lucidity. I do my practices at night. And here's a real humbling statement, Michael, from uh, one of my heroes, Mil Repa, one of the great sage saints, poets of the Tibetan tradition, where he said, I think the phrase is, not seeing day and dream as differing this is as meditation as it can be. And what this means, what commentators have said, and when I read this, I was floored, that until you can meditate in the dream state, the way you meditate in the waking state, your meditation is incomplete. You're not awake. And that alone is like, whoa, boy, does that up the ante a little bit. And so I I share that because it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about these practices, not only Have they been absolutely revelatory, transforming for me? They have given me the opportunity to extend, again, in this idea of bringing meditative states to all states. They allow me to practice under conditions that are utterly lost otherwise. You know, with the precious time we have on this planet, that's no small thing.
0: That's very interesting, Andrew. I'm curious, you know, most of the listeners to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast are... Serious meditators, they spend a lot of time on the cushion. You know, what would you recommend they do? I mean, you know, most lucid dream books and your book have a tremendous amount of suggestions about how to attain lucidity, and it looks really hard. Right. right? Like a huge amount of work. And just for the sake of interest, you know, I've, of course, had lucid dreams, but I haven't had much success doing those on purpose. But what has happened quite a bit is when I'm very, very alert and awake on a long meditation retreat, I sort of enter lucid dreams from the other direction. You know, not going to sleep and waking up in the dream, but... Yes, exactly. Relaxing enough in meditation that you enter a dream state, and yet it's not dullness, you're not actually somehow checked out. I'm like really noticing the dream and meditating on it. Now, that seems actually easier to me. What do you say to the average meditator? Beautiful
1: question, Michael. So two things here, and you nailed it, my friend. There are two ways to approach lucidity. And I'm writing my, I guess, to toss in a brief plug on what I'm doing. The book that you're so kindly referencing is the first in a trilogy. The second one, literally going to my publisher within two weeks, it's called Dreams of Light, The Profound Daytime Practice of Lucid Dreaming the third one and this is why i mentioned it tentatively called the lost temple of sleep integral dream yoga and the path of lucidity in that third forthcoming book michael what i talk about is exactly what you're talking about is that there's so much promised with lucid dreaming but very little delivered because of the power of our bad habits what i call playfully the forces of the dark side that in fact that in <laughs> fact you know darkness of course is a code word for ignorance is that in fact it is difficult to attain lucidity But the important thing here, and this is what I want to tie into what you just said, because you nailed it, is there are two ways to approach lucidity. The first most common way is the one you alluded to, that you learn the techniques, you learn all the dozens and dozens of induction methods, you blah, 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 do all the stuff that 50 books now can tell you about. And this is what I refer to as the path of effort. And it's a completely viable way. It uses the tenets of relative truth and karma and absolutely positively has its place. The second one that I have yet to hear anybody riff on, and this is what my third book is gonna be on, is exactly what you said, and that's why it's so interesting for you to say it, is the other approach is the path of relaxation or the effortless path. And here, the tenet, Michael, that's so compelling to me, is that lucid states of mind, lucid dreaming is actually the natural form of dream. We have been trained, inculcated, unwittingly into the dark arts of non-lucidity. And so using this fundamental premise, I then articulate in this kind of integral schema the four ways, again, you know, a little bit about integral theory, how these four main quadrants co-conspire to keep us in the dark side. And we can talk about that because it's super interesting how that kind of came about historically. But to ping it back to what you were saying, the central point for your listeners is that the path of effortlessness, the absolute path, is exactly what you said. This is completely in line with the formless meditation traditions that you study, Keshmer Shaivism, Mahamudra Dzogchen, and my tradition, where if lucidity is in fact the natural state, then the only thing you quote-unquote need to do is nothing but do it well. And that's the path of relaxation. You just have to relax into the naturally lucid state of your own mind, and lucidity is a consequence of that relaxation. And so for you to say that, my friend, is just another iteration of why I think this can be more widely touted for the contemplatives, for those out there who are a little bit like, "Ah, I'm not sure I want to do all these crazy techniques. They have their place. Don't get me wrong. But the more absolute approach, and this is why dream yoga was considered a supplemental yoga, it's not a main practice, which is why it's not that directly emphasized in even the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. The idea there being, you do the main practices, you do those well. Lucid dreaming is a natural consequence of those practices. So I think you just absolutely nailed it. And so for meditators, two things, go deeper into your relaxation, open your mind. My favorite definition of meditation these days is habituation to openness. And as you open to your heart mind, you're also opening the aperture of your awareness, your inner eye, so to speak, whatever you want to call it. As you open that aperture, you let more light in. Lucidity is a code word for light, or light I would say is a code word for lucidity. You naturally start to have more and more of these dreams. And so this is why Jumping very briefly back to the relative approach is that even if you're doing relative meditations, not the ones that are deeply, profoundly relaxing like you're alluding to, even in the relative way, a number of studies have shown that meditators have more lucid dreams, and it makes total sense. Basically, we're non-lucid to the contents of our mind at night because we're non-lucid to the contents of our mind during the day. It's like Kabir said of death, what is found now is found then. Thanks for giving me a little platform to riff on that a little bit because I think for your listeners, this is super important that you start relaxing, opening your mind as you suggested in your meditation retreat. I absolutely noticed this in my extensive practices. And then lucidity is a natural consequence of that relaxation. I find that quite beautiful, actually.
0: It's really fascinating to me because lately, let's say in the past several years, the book The Mind Illuminated Mm -hmm. has become extremely popular and it's a powerful book. And it uses, you know, the boomy system to help you increase the depth of your meditative concentration, and so on. And one of the big teachings in that book that uh, Chuladasa talks about a lot is overcoming subtle dullness. And he has a very good definition of subtle dullness and makes it very clear why, you know, you should avoid it and how to avoid it. But I notice people are now, because of this book being popular, there's like a extra fear of relaxing too much. That's right. And so this idea that, you know, when the hypnagogic material comes up and then it starts gradiating into dream material, they back off from that immediately thinking that they're going to sleep. But, you know, if it's clear that you're still meditating, you're not just checking out and after the meditation, you still remember it. It wasn't just a blank time while you were asleep, but you're really conscious and actually still meditating on that content. This is tremendously powerful.
1: Yeah. And let me say a little bit about that, Michael, because a couple of things came to mind. First of all is hypnagogic, literally, I love the etymology, hypnosleep, god of sleep, gogia, leading towards leading towards the god of sleep. And on the other end, that's the pre-sleep space. The other end is hypnopompic. That's when you're leading away from the god of sleep. That's when you're waking up. These two states collectively, now there's a new term coming out these days, referred to sometimes as liminal dreaming. Liminal meaning threshold. I like to refer to it as almost like a type of bardo dreaming.
0: And that counts for both sides? Exactly,
1: exactly. And what's really cool here is that you can very legitimately work with the tenets of dream yoga in this liminal state, in this hypnagogic descent state. In other words, you can, and this is really helpful for meditators, is in fact their mind starts to get soggy, you know, and they start, we've all been there, right? Your belly's full, the sun is out, you're on your cushion, and you're starting to nod, you're just dropping off. If you have an understanding of the stages of sleep, if you have an understanding of liminal dreaming, you can start to play with your mind in a really interesting way instead of wrestling with it and feeling that somehow this fragmentation, and talk about deconstructing yourself project, Michael, oh my gosh, this stage right here happens every single night where you can, in fact, gain a profound glimpse, and intimation of the self being deconstructed. You can see the narrative that I would argue is a large part of the egoic structure. You start to see that unravel. And again, just briefly, so people have something to work and play with, you know, you're starting to go to sleep and you're thinking, in fact, thoughts often stand up as we lie down because sensory distraction is lessened. You start to pay attention to your mind. Then you may notice how there's a few more gaps that start to appear in your mind. The narrative starts to come undone. That's just what happens. In fact, if it didn't, you would never fall asleep. You only fall asleep when you fall between the bardos, the gaps in your narrative structure. So there's a natural deconstruction that's taking place every single night. And so if you pay more attention, the gaps arise, then you start to notice a very interesting phase of the hypnagogic descent, which is called thought image amalgamation, where you start to notice that thoughts are being replaced by images. Your mind is now morphing from a thought to an image, and you have these really interesting amalgamations that you can start to pay attention to. Then the fourth and final stage is the thought-image amalgamations then become almost entirely imagistic. In other words, you're no longer thinking. Mental content now is replaced with dreams, imagistic dreams, what I refer to as dreamlets. And if you're armed with this skill set, you can play with a very fascinating state where you will notice how thought morphs into image, morphs into dream reality. And in so doing, you can actually start to seed your dreams. In fact, it's one way to work with things like dream incubation. But within the context of your very podcast, as you go through this process every night, as ego goes offline, it goes undone. It comes undone. And in fact, I argue this is one reason ego dismisses sleep and dream. Because if ego can't fully experience it, like science going bad into scientism, it colonizes and dismisses states of consciousness it can't fully experience. And so armed with these tools, we can in fact see a temporary deconstruction. This is why some people have momentary panics when they fall asleep sometimes literally the jerking called myoclonic or hypnic jerking, where literally the egoic narrative is coming undone, you're falling apart, you're falling, literally falling asleep. And then if you're really into it, like you're alluding to with your own meditation experiences, you can then start to work with what's called a waking initiated, a waking induced lucid dream, where just like you were talking about earlier, you can maintain Lucidity, there's two ways to attain lucidity in the dream. You alluded to this earlier, I just want to articulate it. One is what's called the dream-initiated lucid dream, which is where you're in the dream and all of a sudden something clues you into the fact, OMG, this is a dream, and you wake up. That's a dream-initiated lucid dream. What you talked about earlier and what I'm referring to here that people can play with, and meditators can immediately start to do this, is what's called a wake-initiated lucid dream. And what this means is you can bring consciousness with you as you go into the dream state. And this is exactly what advanced meditators do. And in fact, as you know, the highest of all realized meditators, they literally do not go to sleep. Their body goes into repose, but the mind never turns off. And they can watch this descent from egoic waking consciousness into this liminal bardo space, into either the lucid sleep or lucid dream state, and as you well know, in Advaita Vedanta and Tantric Shaivism, this is one of the summations of the meditative path where you attain constant consciousness, constant awareness through all states. And these practices invite that. They allow us to actually do it. But let me say one last thing, and I'll come back for air. And don't be shy to interrupt me if I rant on too long. But you said something else earlier about mind illuminated and the issue of the mind You know, if you relax, the mind gets flat or soggy. Well, as we all know, that's one of the central challenges. You know, it's either laxity or excitation, right? The mind pings between these two extremes. And the trick is exactly what I was talking about earlier is about doing nothing but doing it well. In other words, there is the the proper art of relaxation. And that's why we have to be guided by these more so called advanced meditations where we learn how to relax but we learn how to relax properly because otherwise we're not relaxing into the true nature of the mind we're relaxing into these very subtle dimensions of the unconscious egoic mind and those are the traps and those are the ones i have the book michael i haven't read it yet but i'm sure those are the ones that tulidasa is talking about where we're slipping very easily the near enemy of this type of relaxation is in fact kind of dozing off in these less than awakeful states yes so anyway, great points.
0: Now, you were bringing up the Wilberian quadrant aspect of this. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about how the four quadrants apply to lucid dreaming or dream yoga.
1: Well, for listeners, they probably are familiar with because you have probably talked to them about it. But
0: Now, you're friends with Ken, yeah, I presume, he, since you're there Yeah, in he's not that
1: far away. And, and I've known Ken for 20, 30 years. He's a dear, dear friend and obviously a big influence. One of my intellectual heroes and integral theory has informed me, again, simply because it has just so much raw explanatory power. There's so much that can be explained with the integral approach. That just that It's just intuitive to me. It just makes so much sense. But yeah. in terms of the kind of lucidity project, so for those who may or may not be familiar with it, You can think of a little grid like a cross and basically this grid and again the most general of senses you have inside and outside of an individual and a collective and and what that really means is you're thinking of a cross on the upper left you have phenomenology interiority On the upper right, you have the so-called external support for that. So, that would be biology, neurology, and that sort of thing. And and obviously, conjoining those two is what's called neurophenomenology. And I toss this out because you've interviewed Evan Thompson, and that's what Evan and a lot of these neuroscientists talk about. So, that's upper left, upper right. That's neurophenomenology. Lower left, lower right is culture and sociology. It's
0: the plural exactly.
1: So, again, inside and outside of the individual and the collective. It's really pretty comprehensive. And so what this does in terms of the lucidity project, and this is what I'm writing about in the third book, is that we can look at both lucidity and non-lucidity. And again, lucidity is really a code word for awareness. We can look at lucidity, i.e. awareness, through these four quadrants. We can look at the phenomenological aspects, what we discover in meditation on the cushion. That's the one that's usually stressed but it's not complete. The sciences, especially neuromania these days, has a lot to offer. There's a tremendous skill set coming from the sciences now that describe the correlative, not the causative. There's a difference between correlation and causation. The correlative aspects of phenomenological experiences, in other words, like what's going on in your brain And so briefly, this is what substances like galantamine do that are used, lucid dreaming projects to help lucidity. They target that aspect. Some of these transcranial electrical stimulators, which are cautiously being explored, they kind of harness that to bring about lucidity. But I'm just as much interested, Michael, with the lower social and cultural aspects. Like what are the conditions Socially and culturally, that we have unwittingly fallen prey to, that have really brought about this collective dark age. Where did this come from? And this is super interesting. I mean, there's so much to say here, but ever so briefly, you know, prior to, and what a surprise, prior to, you know, the proclamations of some church fathers, and I can name them some of these bad boys. Dreams were honored, they were respected, they were thought of as true portals into the nature of mind and reality. And then, of course, you know, what a surprise that some church fathers, inappropriately the Dark Ages, came along and started to demonize the dream. And so we were hence, and this is the title, The Lost Temple of Sleep. Previously, we had a sacred relationship to mind as it expresses itself in sleep and dream. And this was archetypally represented in Healing Temples of Asclepius. And we were evicted from these temples by kind of uh, sour ends of intellectual and religious history. And so we were literally evicted from this temple of sleep where dreams were demonized, literally as do not pay attention to your dreams. They're the voice of the devil, you know, run and hide. And so it really, it wasn't until Jung, especially Freud with his interpretation of dreams, and then of course his protege Carl Jung and all these other people, these were not so much innovators, Michael, as they were restorers. And so I talk about these seminal individuals as really the onset, the beginning of the Temple Reconstruction Project, which has really slowly taken place, thank goodness to Freud. And Freud obviously had a lot of things that were a little bit off. But his understanding of mind in relationship to dream He he made some seminal contributions. And so what I do then is I explore, okay, well, how do all these factors co-conspire to bring about either lucidity and non-lucidity? And the reason this is so important is that it's very easy to fall prey to what sociologists talk about, a single action bias. Oh, just give me your technique. And again, this, this replies to anything, not just lucid dreaming. Fill in any discipline. Just give me your discipline, give me your technique, give me your method, that's going to be my ticket in. Well, again, in the spirit of integral theory, true, but partly true. It's not the whole picture. Reality isn't that simple. Reality is multifactorial, complex, systemic, holistic, whatever you want to term it. And so I love to look at these vast factors that come into play, because then if you target all those factors, well, guess what happens? lucidity is a natural consequence of this more comprehensive approach and so i just get super excited when i look at this because it does two things it reveals to me the power the force of the dark side and how through the power of individual and collective karma so much so that it's burned into my dna and this is not an exaggeration it's part of my biological makeup I have been trained, and my body has been trained into non-lucidity. And so if that's the case, and I argue that it is, let's take exactly those same tenets in an alchemical tantric way using the tenets of transmutation. Let's take that lead now and transform it into gold. How can we create our own temple, recreate our own temple of sleep to our own processes? using these four quadrants. Every single night, we can enter our temple of sleep. The people that we hang out with can help us. And so if we do that, we then not only understand why we have become so ignorant, asleep, blind, whatever metaphor you want to use, but now what can we do about it? And using this approach, and this is what I try to do with my programs, and my writing is now, now we're talking about the real kind of co-creative aspects of reality and we're paying homage to the complexity of the whole shebang, now we're going to start to see some success. Because otherwise, well, good luck. You may have a little bit of hit and miss with your galantamine or with you know, your transcranial electrical stimulator or with your meditation or with your dream sangha. But what happens if you bring them all together? And so that's the aspiration, and that's what I get pretty jazzed about. So something
0: like that, my friend. That's really fascinating, Andrew. I'm, again, coming back to the meditator on the cushion, the person who's really actually doing the work in their own life What would you recommend to them as a takeaway? Like, I see the big vision. It's a very inspiring vision. And, you know, is it about, okay, let's try all these techniques and get into dream yoga that way? Is it honoring dreams in life? Is it simply noticing that waking life is a dream and somehow working from there? I mean, what would you recommend? I mean, I get it that all of those are possible, but where does someone start with really beginning to incorporate this in a real and serious and meaningful way?
1: So, I think what I would recommend, Michael, is that obviously it depends on a person's conviction, how important they may think this is. And so, let's just say a couple things. One is okay, let's say somebody has looked at the discipline of lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Really done a little bit of reading and saying, wow, you know, holy moly, there's a lot here. I had no idea I could do all these things in the dream state. So the first thing is to develop this kind of attitudinal infrastructure that is like, wow, there's so much available to me when I sleep in dream." So bingo, there's number one, and that's no small thing. And then secondly, it's working with what the Buddhist tradition refers to as right view, complete view, which is, in fact, everything that we're talking about here. But this view, and the reason I think this term is so compelling, is the view is not just used analogically, it's also used phenomenologically. And what I mean by that is that when you really start to play with this stuff, you realize that these nocturnal practices, what you do in the sanctuary of your own mind under the cover of darkness, so to speak, with these practices is not left under the cover you pull the blankets off and you take these insights into your daily life. And therefore, what you see at night can profoundly inform and transform what you see during the day. And so once you start to really grok this and the power of right view starts to settle with you, then, and this is one of the reasons I think dream yoga is a slightly a, a more advanced practice, is that no one knows your mind better than you. No one knows your idiosyncrasies and your vicissitudes better than you. And so therefore, again, using the moniker, the measure of the path, you have to look honestly into your own heart, mind, and start to be your own guide. So you equip yourself with some of these skill sets. You pay attention to how they register in your heart, mind. And sooner or later, what I have found is you will start to find your way in. In the relative approach, the idea, unless you're teaching this stuff, is not to master all these dozens of techniques. Many of these techniques are there because this is not a one-size-fits-all practice. We're all different. And though many of these practices came about, these different methods, because one of them will really speak to you, and I can tell you which ones really speak to me, and then that's your ticket in. The point is not to master all the techniques unless you're teaching the stuff. The point is lucidity, not what gets you there. And so with that in mind, for your listeners and my peeps, I would simply say number one thing is having the right view and then the power of meditation. I mean, that cannot be overstated because when you're working with your dreams, for goodness sake, what are dreams made of? You're not dropping into some pre-existent dream topography every night. Dreams are made of your mind. You're working with your mind, and that's the great opportunity. And so when you understand that, then you understand that this goes along with this tenet from neuroscience that I'm sure you know of. It's referred to as bi-directionality, that what you do during the day affects what you do at night. That's pretty intuitive. What you do at night affects what you do during the day. So start to do things during the day that will more overtly affect lucidity at night. And meditation is by far the best one can do with that, because as we attain awareness, lucidity to the contents of our mind, I mean, again, it's very humbling, Michael, but if you take a very close look at your mind, depending on which data you compile, anywhere from 60 000 to 80,000 thoughts a day stream through our minds, and the vast majority of them stream through non-lucidly. It's like You know, the big CNN story, and then the CNN crawler, and then the CNN subcrawler. You know, there's infinite (laughs) storylines, infinite narratives that keep the storyline of the ego alive. You start to realize that most of what goes through your life is non-lucid. Non-lucid contents of mind during the day lead very naturally, so to speak, to non-lucid contents of mind at night. So to me, it is no mystery why we have so many non-lucid dreams. It's because we practice, and this is not an exaggeration, we practice non-lucidity all the time. Whenever you get lost in thought, here's another way to say it, Michael. A lucid dream is a remembered dream, a non-distracted dream, an aware dream. A non-lucid dream is a distracted dream, a forgotten dream, a dream where we're unaware. Well, we can practice remembrance. We can practice non-distraction. We can practice mindfulness versus mindlessness. And so, you know, for your listeners, meditation is a way to absolutely harness lucidity. And especially if you start to set the intention, that's the other major powerful what i call super technique you now start to meditate with the intention that i want to establish a lucid relationship to my mind now so that i can establish a lucid relationship to my mind when i sleep and dream and the empowered of intentionality cannot be overstated and again intention when you start to look at really what's called a fully constituted karma there are four main ingredients of a fully loaded karma intention is first and foremost So intentionality, harnessed with meditation, harnessed with belief, and belief again comes to the social cultural conditioning, you're starting to set the stage, you're starting to create the field of dreams, whereby if you do this, if you build this field, these dreams will come. And so what I don't want to do here, uh, Michael, is be kind of pigeonholed into one single action, because again, that's just our propensity. Give me the bullet, give me the pill. If I had to go home and leave you with just one thing, I would say meditate. But secondly, because meditation is the practice of lucidity, but honoring reality in this integral way, holistic way, you really want to do it. You can join it with attitude, with intentionality, with belief. And then on top of that, you start adding these methods as they speak to you. So something like that.
0: Wow, that's really fascinating and gives us, I think, a broader picture of what this is about. And I'm intrigued that you were able to kind of sidestep the move of just giving one particular technique.
1: Yeah, reality just doesn't work that way. It's part of the egoic agenda. You know, give me the one thing. You know, the single action bias thing is really worth noting because that's where we tend to default. Oh, just give me the good. Well, you know, reality just doesn't work that way. And so, The comprehensive approach, I think, needs to be honored.
0: I've had a long love affair with sleep. I really like sleeping. And something that's unusual is I've arranged my life so that I take a lot of naps. I'm able to take at least a nap a day because I find it so valuable and it really refreshes my mind and like reboots the entire brain, even a short nap. But another reason, and this is probably really the main reason. That I'm so into naps is that every once in a while I'll go into a very deep nap. And coming out of that, there's this time when it's just complete, vast, black, nothing. And there's just this one point of wakefulness in the middle of just like this ultra vast bliss. And that can last quite a long time, actually. And reading your book, I think this is an experience of sleep yoga. And you can tell me if it's not, by the way. And so I had never actually heard of sleep yoga, and I've been practicing it for a long time. So I'd love to hear you talk about sleep yoga. Yeah, totally.
1: Sleep yoga, parenthetically, is in the Tibetan tradition, it's called ursul. So ursul is luminosity, light. Not to be confused with yoga nidra. Yoga nidra, nidra, of course, is Sanskrit for sleep. They're close cousins, but they're not quite the
0: same thing. So, Oh, so I'm describing yoga nidra. You could
1: be describing yoga
0: nidra. Exactly.
1: And that's very Mm -hmm. common. People go, oh, sleep yoga, yoga nidra. Well, close but not cigar. That doesn't dismiss it in any way. But I want to give you a couple of things that I'd be curious to see how this lands with you to see if, in fact, this speaks to your experience. Because anything, again, this is why I love yoga nidra. I am a big fan of this practice, and parenthetically, I am a huge, like you, I am a huge napper. I mean, naps are like, they're my treasure, and recent studies have come out that even napping as little as three times a week for like 30 minutes has now been shown to increase longevity and decrease all these cardiovascular issues. I mean, the health aspects of sleep are really incredibly profound, and I have to just very briefly plug a book came out last year by Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep. If you want to know about the importance of sleep, read this book. And briefly, ever so briefly, and this is the way my mind works in sidebars, Matthew doesn't say he's a neuroscientist out of UC Berkeley. He doesn't say much about lucid dreaming, but in one very compelling three-page section at the very end, he actually says, and it was so startling, I memorized it, he says it's possible that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. It's a very interesting proclamation. Yeah. But the idea here with sleep yoga, Michael, is that sleep yoga is, contradistinction to yoga nidra, is where in fact one wakes up in a completely formless, dreamless space. And let me just say a few things about it which may help you centrifuge out whether this is resonant with your own experience. When you're actually having a true experience of, this would be turiya in the Shiva tantra traditions, There's absolutely no sense of subject, object, self, other whatsoever. And the reason I say this is that when many people... And again, this is not in any way to dismiss any experience. It's just basically to help us understand what's taking place. Because just as there are gradations and spectrums of lucid dreaming and dream yoga... For instance, in my schema, in my first dream yoga book, I articulate nine basic practices, nine stages of dream yoga, going from relatively accessible entry level to quite advanced kind of graduate postdoc level. In exactly the same way, there are also gradations of luminosity yoga, sleep yoga. In fact, part of what you're referring to may be pointing towards that. But one way to determine whether you're actually having a full experience of luminosity yoga is that if there is still a sense of I am experiencing the light, I am experiencing, you talk about this point of light or bindu, if there's still a very subtle flicker of reference taking place, this is still an experience of what would be called eighth consciousness in the Buddhist tradition and not a full-blown experience of rigpa, nature of mind, you know, the deep dharmakaya formlessness of turiya using juxtaposing hindu tradition and so if you're having the experience and there's a subtle sense of i am experiencing the dark i'm experiencing the light that's not quite it because there's still a very subtle flicker of reference back to i am having this so the real experience is when there's no sense of self another a complete utter dissolution into this ineffable formless what you call light but again light is just code word for awareness. You're just resting in the formless awareness of your own root mind.
0: Yeah, I think we may be using words just slightly differently, Andrew, because the experience I'm talking about is the second thing you're describing. There's no sense of like me having an experience. It's just just that
1: yeah exactly yeah that certainly sounds like the so-called experience of ursal or luminosity yoga and -hmm. as you know i mean for me these are game changers again in fact this is also why sleep yoga leads to bardo yoga i have to toss this in because when you're talking about formless sleep something that's dreamless or formless is what deathless death only applies to that which comes into the world of form. And so that's why it's a beautiful segue when you're working, resting in the formless dimensions of your heart-mind, who you really are, that's the part of you that does not die, doesn't get cancer, doesn't get old, doesn't get AIDS, does not enter the world of time, is not subject to the ravages of space and time. And so parenthetically, this is where this practice eventually matures into full-blown bardo yoga where you realize that part of you that does not actually dissolve but so what i want to say about this at least for me and i'll be curious to see if this resonates with you is that one of the best things in fact really the summary thing that one does unlike dream yoga where all these different stages and there are all these different things to do great things to do in sleep yoga, the terrific thing is again, tying back into what we were mentioning earlier, once you access this state, you don't do anything. You just hang out in this deep, foundational, restorative bed of the mind. I mean, it's really like you're landing in the lap of God. And by the way, parenthetically, when you see people resting in, in, in even stage four deep, dreamless sleep without this lucidity, they look incredibly beatific. They look, to me, I, I look at my wife and she looks radiant and beautiful when she's sleeping because she's so open and relaxed, her face even expresses that. And so the practice when you're there, at least this is the way I work with it, and i will be curious to see what you have to say, Michael, is you just this profound, deep non-doing, non-distracted, non-meditation. You just rest in the nature of mind. However, then the practice, at least for me, becomes coming back up into the dream state with this night light, quote unquote, turned on, right? And so now what you do is you, everything's in quotation marks here, you bring that light with you. And when you bring that light with you out of that state, well, guess what? What's the consequence when you, so to speak, come back up? natural lucid dreams either dreams of clarity or dreams of clear light and so all your dreams are naturally lucid then this is why of course why dream yoga supersedes dream yoga but then even further then you bring that night light back with you one more step when you wake up in the morning you wake up that light is still with you talk about waking up on the right side of the bed (laughs) then that light comes on stays on and then you look at the world through this light, and guess what the world appears like when you see it from this lens? Well, it appears like a dream. And so this is where the practice of what's called illusory form comes in. This is the book I'm just submitting to my publisher. It's entirely on this topic. You know, the philosophical, the religious, spiritual, and then scientific backing for how it is that when we see the world the way it really is, in a completely dereified way, we see it as what the buddhist tradition refers to as a loose reform we see it as a dream and dream at this level here's another kind of code word dream at this level just refers to manifestation of mind and this is completely resonant with the highest teachings of shaiva tantra of tibetan tantric buddhism as i come to understand it you know you take the fruition of your nighttime practice You will use that illumination, hence the subtitle of my book, you know, Illuminating Your Life Through the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep and Dream. You take this night light, you bring it with you into the day, and you, so to speak, elucify, dereify the contents of your waking reality. Unless your listener is thinking, well, that's like some philosophical parlor game. Oh my gosh, this is a game changer. Because I invite anybody who's listening to take a very good contemplative look at their experience and see if, in fact, it is not true that all your suffering comes about in direct proportion to how solidly you take the contents of your mind and your world. In other words, the word, as you know, is reification. If there was an original sin in Buddhism, and of course there isn't, it would be to reify, to make solid, to impute Solidity where there isn't one, which is the basis of all materialistic, reductionistic, physicalistic Western science, and which is really this right here is the seed of all the problems that we're facing in the world today. And so lest we think this is some like quaint little metaphysical spiritual thing, it is a game changer because when you come up from this space and you look at the world from this lens, which is actually a non-lens, then you realize the only thing that ever arises is the pure, utter, sacred divinity of mind itself, or whatever phrase you want to put in. You know, God, the Buddha, Buddha nature, these are all cross-dressers, doesn't matter to me. But the <laughs> fundamental idea, and I'm stressing this, Michael, because it's really the, the summary point, in my opinion, is you take these insights from the nocturnal arena, which is just mind in more subtle form. That's what's manifesting in the nocturnal arena, You take that subtlety, you bring that incredible, powerful luminosity into this waking reality, and in so doing, you de-reify it. You see the world as a dream. And this is, in fact, the great, to me, irony of the awakened ones. You know, I've wondered, Michael, like when the Buddha woke up, or when any Buddha wakes up, what do they wake up from, and what do they wake up to? Well, as far as I can tell, they wake up from the nightmare of reification, the nightmare of physicalism, the nightmare of materialism. And they wake up to a so-called spiritual world, a sacred world, a reality that is not made of matter. The word that's beautiful in Japanese is kokoro, heart, mind, spirit. That's what the world is made of. And when you have that experience, that's really complete awakening. Then you realize you know, you know, you've kind of caught on to this painful joke that we continue to play on ourselves, you know, from beginning of time.
0: <laughs> Andrew, if people want to learn more about your work, where would you direct them to? Oh, you're very kind.
1: Well, obviously, everybody has their websites these days. So andrewholacek.com is where you can reach me. I'm sure Michael will spell my name for you. And then we launched, Michael, about seven months ago, we launched a subsite called Nightclub, which is kind of within the main site, which is a way for people to explore everything we've been talking about tonight with a community of like-minded practitioners where we do exactly what you and I are doing now. I interview some really cool people. We have six ongoing tracks where we explore all these topics in great detail. And then obviously, just like everybody else, they're advertised, you know, the programs that I'm doing. I'm doing a really cool teaching in a couple of weeks with, you know, Stephen LeBerge, who's really, you can say, the godfather of lucid dreaming in the Western world. So that's where people can learn about my riffs, my teachings, which I'm doing more and more of, and about the books and other things that I'm writing about. So thanks for that opportunity.
0: Well, thanks for coming on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you, Michael, for your great questions and your great heart. It's been a delight to spend some time with you, and I hope my babbling has been of some benefit. So I appreciate it very much.
0: that's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. You can also recommend it to a friend or blog about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who may be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast even more, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com forward slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. And there are some cool perks for high-level contributors. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. I stream my class from the San Francisco Dharma Collective live on Thursday nights. And then the video is saved so you can watch it later. The class usually begins with a guided meditation. And then we have a Dharma talk and or questions and answers. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111. That's youtube.com forward slash user forward slash MWT111. That's me, Michael W. Taft. Another free resource is my book, The Mindful Geek, which you can download for free by signing up for my email list. And this email list is really low volume. You will maybe receive one email every three months or something. But if you sign up for the list, I'll give you a free copy of The Mindful Geek. And you can do that on the Deconstructing Yourself website, which is deconstructingyourself.com. So just sign up for the email list and I'll send you a download link for several electronic versions of the book, whichever one suits you. So besides teaching each week in San Francisco, I also lead a number of meditation retreats worldwide each year. The next one is a three-day weekend retreat at Vajrapani Retreat Center in Boulder Creek, California, so near Santa Cruz. That'll be November 8th through the 11th. And you can read more about it and find even more retreats at deconstructingyourself.com forward slash events. If you're interested in one-on-one personal coaching for your meditation practice and for your life, especially if you have an interest in secular dharma, neuroscience, high performance, and awakening, please email me at michael at deconstructingyourself.com. I look forward to hearing from you. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound. And when it hasn't been all that great, the problem was with the person doing the recording, that is, me. All the amazing parts of the sound have been the result of a wonderful audio engineer and human being named Stephen McNamara. He's the all-things-audio person with decades of experience in producing music and spoken word. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com, so Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. He also makes music at yogitar.com. So music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Be well.